I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome, everybody. Welcome after another short break between uh, episodes, mostly because, and this will be the topic of um, some of this episode, I was traveling again. I was at KubeCon. I was back to an in-person KubeCon in lovely Valencia. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but I have a few links I want to cover first. Just a couple, a few things I've been up to in addition to that. And then uh, I'll get into highlights of KubeCon. I'm going to have some follow-up, deeper interviews with a few people I spoke to over the coming weeks. But they're going to take a little bit of time to put together. And they'll be available mostly as video, but potentially also with some audio separately. But uh, let's get started with a few links first. First up on ZDNet from Charlie Osborne. And the interesting thing with uh, some of these is I met some people from some of these publications whilst at KubeCon, including uh, not Charlie Osborne, not knowingly anyway, but the infamous Stephen J. Vaughan, who I have referenced quite a few times on this podcast and actually met him. A few people from TechCrunch and The Register, you know, all, all journos together and then delayed me. But anyway, I digress. This is from Charlie Osborne on ZDNet. How to delete yourself from the internet search results and hide your identity online. Um, this starts out quite light and then goes deeper and deeper in various ways to find out, I think, first, um, how your data is being accessed by various services. I mean, if you live in uh, the EU or California, this is made slightly easier. But I think, uh, I think, I don't know. Living in the EU, it's hard for me to tell. But I think that uh, the 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 tools that these companies had to create are available to everybody. I'm not sure. But then also more general sites like Have I Been Pooned or Pooned or <laughs> however it's pronounced um, to see if uh, your details have been exposed in any. Uh, any, uh, what do we call it, any uh, compromised data breaches. Also, a few password tools do this. I noticed 1Password is starting to integrate this, and I think some others, I think Firefox does as well. Um, but then it goes deeper, actually, into other third-party services, which feels a little uh, a little weird to be using third-party services um, that you have to sign up for to then get rid of your data. And some of them are not available in the EU, like Unroll Me, which gets you off of email lists because of GDPR regulations, which feels weird. <laughs> it covers like Google, it covers social media services primarily. Um, although I wonder if um, if those are all of them. I guess that's where have I have have I been pluned comes into on some of those other services. Also says, look at some old services you might have forgotten about. Things like MySpace, LinkedIn, uh, not LinkedIn, LiveJournal. These all still exist and you sometimes forget about them. Um, and it's also interesting to know uh, which of those might have been exposed a long time ago when you probably didn't care about passwords as much. <laughs> a couple of other third-party services are justdeleteme.com which is a directory of how to do it uh, and how easy it is, which is, is quite helpful. And then also account killer. And then 
it talks about how to moving forward, I suppose, get exposed less to services. So things like using uh, different browsers, privacy-focused browsers like DuckDuckGo or, or Brave or whatever, um, using junk email addresses. I've really been liking the hide my email that's built into iCloud. Uh, I think the iCloud One, Apple One, but also One Password has a deal with Fastmail that does something similar. VPNs are another example, and some others too. But I found it a nice, interesting summary of various places to start on this kind of path of clearing yourself of the internet, shall we say. Next, and I'm going to be a little bit creative, mostly with these. This was from The Warus, a wonderful sounding magazine called The Warus by Carmine Starnino. Robots are writing poetry and many people can't tell the difference. <laughs> and apparently this is not the first time. There was a collection, or is it one poem from 1984, by someone called Rector, called The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed. Um, I don't know how it was created. Uh, let's see, back in 1984. It was code back in 1984. An early desktop computer program with the rules of English grammar. The algorithm could conjugate verbs, assign genders to pronouns, match adjectives with nouns, and discern singular from plural with a vocabulary of 7,000 words. This is from 1984. So that's... Actually, quite impressive. Um, but then we'll jump forward a bit. And of course, we have things like GPT-3, the open AI. Um, and it does quite differently and has got a lot smarter. I mean, especially when you consider that poetry is often a bit weird and often a bit surreal and can be justified to be that way. Uh, <laughs> it's I guess, easier to get away with poetry that doesn't always have to make sense, shall we say. And then also Deep Spear, which I think I've mentioned before. I've actually wanted to interview them, but uh, haven't quite got around to it, uh, where they um, taught an AI to write Shakespearean sonnets, which is quite cool. And recent examples of GPT-3 are The New Yorker uh, assigned it... Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's uh, Kubla Khan, which apparently was opium-induced <laughs> from 1797, but never completed, and they tasked it with finishing it. <laughs> um, and apparently that if you hadn't read the original poem, you probably wouldn't be able to tell. Uh, I'm not familiar with the poem. I don't know if people are familiar with the poem. Well, they probably could tell because they would recognise there's an ending, but maybe they'd forgotten or something like that. But that was kind of an interesting one that didn't do so much. I think where a lot of these algorithms start to break down is when they are assigned long-form content. But if it's just like small snippets like that, then I think it's quite uh, it's, it's quite it's probably quite good, to be honest with you. And the article goes further... Uh, it talks about some of the Turing test um, tests. I actually just finished reading a, a, a graphic novel, uh, The Imitation Game. I'm not sure if it's what the film was based on. Um, based on Turing, and this covers some of those tests as well, actually. I was surprised, actually, I didn't realise how many of the tests he proposed were theoretical, mostly, at the time. Uh, I guess because computing wasn't powerful enough to actually, to actually uh, do anything with them at the time. And then I suppose the article and the people looking at AI for poetry, where it focuses, are okay, what does it mean for AI to accomplish poetry? 
And what would we want to be convinced? Um, and there's an interesting quote here. Most people have so little of an idea of what poetry is. And that is true. I tried writing poetry recently. It's very hard. Most people think of rhyming or sort of limerick style poetry, but poetry is often much more freeform or follows, actually follows certain structures that people aren't aware of. I'm not. Um, I think iambic pentameter is one of the most well-known ones, but there's obviously probably others as well that I'm not so aware of. This is probably why it's an easy target that consumers of poetry are A, few and far between compared to fiction and non-fiction. And secondly, a lot of people would probably not notice so much because of its more surreal style. And the article closes after sort of recounting, I guess, cases throughout computing history where people were generally surprised that uh, people didn't notice that something was not created by a human to be announcing that GPT-4 is coming. I don't know when. It says promised a new version. I'm not sure when. It'll be 500 times more powerful, whatever that might mean. Um, will it mean the end of a lot of these things? Or will it continue to be an assistant? What is going to be the outcome of that? And I'm kind of always interested in following these stories. <laughs> uh I would love to get my hands on GPT-3 to try some of my own experiments, but uh, so far I haven't been accepted. If you're listening, I would love to hear from you. (laughs) Anyway, um, have you read any AI-generated poetry? What did you think? Did you notice? Let me know. ChristianChiller.com. You can find the contact details right there. Finally, this was an article from Wired, um, written by... No one, seemingly. <laughs> I guess it's a listicle. Um, best time travel movies of all time. Why am I covering this? Well, I'm working on my first fiction novel at the moment, but the second one I have <laughs> in mind is a, I only finished the first one, but anyway, is time travel related with a bit of a twist, as all of these things should be. And so I've been building up a list of films and books to research, much as I did with my first novel, and I'm doing with my first novel. So I found this quite useful. Some of them are probably fairly obvious, like Terminator films, uh, Groundhog Day, Back to the Future, Interstellar, Donnie Darko, Planet of the Apes, but then a few others I hadn't heard of. And so if I, like uh, some French ones um, and some Spanish ones and some uh, Chinese ones. So if... I'm able to actually get a hold of them and watch them, then it'd be great to add to the list to see what else could be done. And I've been reading a few time travel related books, the Time Travel's Almanac I'm reading at the moment with quite a lot of short stories around time travel. And it's actually quite interesting when you think or oh, everything must have been done within a particular genre, you find interesting new ways that people do it. And it's the same with you know, zombies and vampires and things like that. Uh, I actually highly recommend a film called Blood Red Sky which is on Netflix, at least in Europe. It's a German-UK production. And that was a vampire film that was done quite differently. <laughs> so it's always cool to see. And I hope this will be uh, similar for Zombies with my novel when it's finished. But, you know, that even though you think tropes are done to death, there's always something else that people can add to them. All right, KubeCon. KubeCon EU 2022 in Valencia. 7,000 people um, got together... In-person conferences are coming back. 
and it was great to get back to parties, great to get back to hanging out with uh, journalists and press people and interview people and see demos and sit in overly air-conditioned rooms watching people talk and all the good and bad things about conferences. Um, but still, it's nice to be back. I'm going to go through a few highlights and then I have a bunch of uh, follow-up interviews I'm going to do with a few people uh, coming out of the next few weeks, a few technical deep dives with some companies and some representative companies that I met whilst I was there. But let's go through some of my um, notices, some of my trends I noticed and things like that. So first would be, I think, the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, recognizing and acknowledging that the landscape, the ecosystem landscape, has become very hard to navigate, so much so that there's a new working group called Cartographos, which is a very strange name, that's emerging to help people filter down and kind of assess the the maturity of projects in uh, the ecosystem, which is sort of slightly, uh, I guess it's slightly comical and and probably easy to poke fun at in itself that um, you need a separate working group to help people navigate something. But there we go. Um, And Kubernetes continues to grow and grow and grow. Um, But there was a lot of focus this year on kind of streamlining and smoothing out the process, reducing cost, reducing friction, reducing time spent on getting up and going with Kubernetes, I guess. And some of this I will come back to in some later points, actually, some of the some of the strategies and approaches and programs that are being suggested to um, to help with that, shall we say. But let's quickly switch back to security. This is sort of one of the more subtle issues, but also helps, um, I guess, solidify up and stabilize that Kubernetes experience. There are a lot of talks on security, even a dedicated track. I think... Um, a lot of these have sort of been known for some time. The tendency for people just to sort of blindly trust containers and images behind containers, but also some of the very easy exploits in uh, orchestrating containers that people miss. But then also I saw a focus, a mention of a focus on that as we automate so many workflows, developers miss kind of some of the subtleties of what's going on behind the scenes and sometimes trust those automated processes too much without really understanding what they're doing um, and this can lead to a variety of different impacts this includes things like um, not sort of losing a grip of licensing of different dependencies in that chain but also inadvertently introducing malicious code and versions and things like that this is kind of something that developers know from various programming language ecosystems but then when you start to orchestrate lots of containers then it's really uh, magnified because there's so much going on in terms of dependency chains and there have been a lot of calls for software bills of materials, SBOMs, which always made me giggle because it sounded like people were swearing, uh, that let people, especially corporate people, audit third-party dependencies in an entire chain. And this, the interesting aspect here was uh, a focus on not just open source, which in theory you can audit if you want to, even though it's time-consuming, but also encouraging proprietary companies to list those dependencies themselves. So you can't audit them, but you can at least hopefully trust 
what they say and what they depend on. So you can, you can, well, you can have a reference. It's not really auditing them per se, but possibly audited by independent third parties. So you kind of have more trust, I guess. So next up is the rising growth of observability. Observability everywhere in some respects. This is relates to my day job territory, but I saw people kind of using the term observability to mean all sorts of things. And I think that's possibly where the problem is going to come. It has generally meant something very specific, but people are starting to use it in all sorts of different places. And you can see from the questions people start asking, like, is observability bounced rate on web pages? That sort of thing. When it isn't, but, you know, the terminology would make a lot of people think, well, why isn't it? Uh, so that's going to probably become problematic as people start to misuse the term over the coming years. Um, but there was a standalone Prometheus Day, uh, which happened uh, just before, where there was a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of talks on the topic. But then directly related to this was, is open telemetry, which has sort of uh, seeked to standardise uh, Prometheus and a bunch of other uh, similar standards into something that's more universal. And the CNCF claimed it is now the second most active CNCF project, which you don't necessarily see from the activity, but I believe it. Uh, and there was, again, a standalone day. Um, and uh, Dotan Horowitz is worth mentioning from blogs.io, who I think I interviewed someone from on the podcast many years ago. Um he outlined a lot of the, I guess, assessment of where the project's at and, you know, what clients you want to use or what language you want to use and the features you want and, and sort of a, a scale of maturity around that for guidance, which is quite useful. Uh, next, building on, I think, topics from the last KubeCon, and this was uh, manifested by the fact I had so many interviews with service mesh people just after the last KubeCon, uh, that continued, again, had a dedicated track and a lot of talks. I don't necessarily think it has built up that much, maybe starting to roll back ever so slightly with a lot of people questioning whether they need it. But uh, the, the, the momentum is still there, albeit maybe slowing slightly. Now, I alluded to this earlier. The CNCF has expanded their certification program. This is always something that foundations do because it helps, again, people navigate maturity, uh, providers, et cetera, et cetera, because you get to understand if a provider, if a tool is, is good or useful to you or not. So they announced a program and a test suite aimed primarily at telecommunications operators. They can use to evaluate certain tools relevant to their business, and that is a growing section of the cloud native business, but also a Prometheus associate program. Um, which follows up from their announcements last year and, again, is very relevant to my day job and I suppose also fits very nicely into the whole um, open telemetry uh, approaches as well. Now, finally, something I have kind of taken a lot of interest in on in my various outputs of video and audio, um, this is developer productivity. Again, I find this kind of intriguing in that when something becomes so complicated, you need to add more tools to simplify them. Is that a sign that things have got too out of control? But anyway, this kind of paradigm of product teams of, um, I guess this is sort of rearranging of developers and DevOps, which it would have been in the past, that there is a dedicated team who provides platform services to developers so they can self-serve within the company. 
And then, of course, there are commercial companies that will also offer this sort of internally, but also just to your general um, one-person shop as well, uh, a way to more easily coordinate and manage um, ephemeral... Um, I can't think of the right words, but uh, ephemeral on-command environments for testing certain things and stuff like that. And there's a number of companies emerging in this space, even to the point where they're going to have their own conference actually coming up in a couple of weeks online. It's PlatformCon. So <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, I think that was the, the the main thing I saw. There was a little bit of a kind of bitter, bitter sweet taste in the air, I guess, all the um, issues recently with uh, the crashing stock market and funding rounds and VCs kind of getting a little bit cold on a lot of funding because of all this maybe left a few companies feeling a little lacklustre. You know, this kind of celebrating getting back together. But then there's this little bit of an elephant in the room around that at the moment as well that... Yeah, there's a little bit of a vibe of that, but not too much. It didn't really seem to dampen the spirits that much. Um, but yeah, it was a good event. And as I say, watch the podcast, or don't watch the podcast, watch the podcast feed, listen to the podcast, and watch my YouTube feed and my uh, website, christianchiller.com, for more follow-up interviews coming out of uh, KubeCon very soon. Okay, what have I been up to then apart from that? I have, what do I have? I have two things to tell you about right now last hands-on was warp terminal for the 21st century interesting would i switch to it not sure yet but interesting and i also started doing a solo adventure series of live streams where i am learning unity i got quite stuck on the first one i might put out an edited version in the very near future but that uh, is also available on all my video channels right now. I also just did a live version, hands-on, of um, GitHub Codespaces, and I'm putting together an edited version of that soon too. So those are the main things I've been up to recently. I'm on the road again um, next week. So week beginning May 30th, I will be delivering a workshop um, on OBS at SoapCon. In, um, in Krakow, in Poland, on the 1st of June. And then I'll be heading to the UK Gaming Expo uh, for the most of the time. So if you're at either of those, then, yeah, get in touch, say hi. Lovely to see you. And I'll have a few more events coming up soon. But that, uh, those are the main ones that are relevant to this episode. So, yeah, maybe, it's nice to be saying this, maybe see you again at an event soon. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work. <laughs>